This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History. I am your host, Derek Litvak. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Kimberly M. Welch, author of Black Litigants in the Antebellum American South, published by University of North Carolina Press in 2018. Dr. Welch is Assistant Professor of History and Assistant Professor of Law at Vanderbilt University. Black Litigants in the Antebellum American South explores the history of free and enslaved Black Americans' use of local courts in the Cotton South. Largely focused on unpublished and unexplored lower court records from the Natchez District in Mississippi in Louisiana between 1800 and 1860, Dr. Welch's study highlights the many ways Black Americans were able to utilize a system which was supposed to be stacked against them for their own benefit. Black litigants in the antebellum American South is winner of the 2019 J. Willard Hearst Book Prize for Best Book and Social legal history from the Law and Society Association, and the 2018 David J. Langham Senior Prize for Best Book in American Legal History from the Langham Charitable Trust. Dr. Welch, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Derek. Pleasure to be with you. I guess to begin, uh, can you tell our listeners why you chose this project? Like, Why did you become interested in it? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I got interested in this uh, project um, because uh, in some ways, I guess the way that a lot of historians are following uh, reading and then following uh, the footnotes um, of others, uh, others work that we become interested in. And when I was a graduate student, I uh, was reading uh, Josh Rothman's wonderful book, Notorious in the Neighborhood, about cross-cultural sexual relationships between um, whites, and, mostly white men and, and, and black women. And um, I was reading, there's a, case, there's a chapter that he has on sexual violence um, toward the end of the book. And I was reading about a particular case that uh, surprised me. And he did, doesn't discuss it for very long. But I became so interested in that case that I drove down, I was living in D.C. at the time, and I drove down to Richmond to the Library of Virginia to follow that footnote and um, find the case for myself and read it in detail. And the case involved um, a woman named, an enslaved woman named Peggy who had murdered um, her master. What she had done was um, 
in in the night, crept into his home, into his uh, into his bedroom, um, hit him with an axe, and then burned the house down around him. And um, she was immediately taken into custody the next day, and, um, and eventually, pretty quickly, actually found guilty of the crime um, because she had, in fact. Uh, perpetrated the murder, and um, and sh- there were many witnesses um, who uh, stood up and and claimed that she had had done it. What surprised, and that you know, um, in, in in itself is not that unusual of a case. Um, but what surprised me about this was that in the record there was a list of signatures of over a hundred white people from the community who asked the governor of Virginia to uh, to grant her clemency um, and free her. And, and that's exactly what happened. So uh, the governor pardoned her and the hundred people in the town included the judge in her case, as well as the sheriff and one of his deputies and a number of other white men in that community. And they asked, um, while she was found guilty in the local court, the governor then pardoned her and transferred her out of the state. And they did so because of the unusual uh, and exceptional circumstances um, of the case. So it turns out that Peggy um, was uh, her master was at her constantly um, trying to force her uh, to have sexual intercourse with him. And um, he would tie her up and so on and threaten to sell her to Louisiana, which was a, a, a a common thing and one that enslaved people were quite terrified of. Um, and, and eventually she grew so, um, upset with this, tired of this, that, that, that she, she finally uh, resorted to killing him and the people in town. So the reason that they came to her defense was because the circumstances of her case they thought were so awful, because not only was this man at her sexually and not only was he her owner, but he was also her father. So there was just a line that he had crossed that they would not tolerate. Um, and the case um, just had got me thinking about the ways in which law on the ground versus law at the appellate level works uh, could work so differently. And if, I wanted to know if there were other circumstances in where the courts could protect enslaved people or free people of color, people who did not have legal standing in the majority of circumstances to initiate a claim or to um, or try to get the state to protect them through the court system. And so I started looking around. Um, so after that case, I started looking around for other cases, um, first in appellate court records, and I didn't find too many, uh, much evidence of that. Those are easily searchable through LexisNexis and other things, and um, and they're published cases. And then I started looking um, through uh, into trial court records, um, the local courts, courts that are closest to people um, on the ground in their communities. And I found a number of cases from Louisiana and a number of cases from Mississippi. So 
I moved down there um, at first for a few months at a time. And then over the course of five years or so, kept returning uh, and systematically went through the court records of four counties, two in Mississippi and two in Louisiana, and found over, eventually compiled a database of over a thousand cases uh, where um, uh, civil cases rather than criminal civil cases where um, uh, free people of color and enslaved people sued whites and other people of color um, to protect their interests or their property and so on. So the cases are everything from debt recovery. There's a number of those to freedom suits, to um, petitions for divorce, to land disputes, um, all sorts of things, all and all sorts of things that we don't really expect that the court would um, one, allow a black person to stand up and claim and then to find uh, in their favor. And so, um, and that's what those are the those thousand that thousand, that database of a thousand records is the um, is the data that I used to build this book. Wow, that is fascinating um, in terms of the way that you got into the project um, and being able to kind of track down that case. And speaking of, you know, all of these cases that you're able to compile mm -hmm. um, that you were able to find, you know, you have these wonderful pictures in the book of yeah. what these case files actually look like. Yeah. Um, and what the and you speak about the experience of actually trying to go and find these um, records, many that people don't even know exist. Like the people working at the county courthouses don't know exist. No, they don't know where they are. They're never um, actually organized. Um, I believe at one point you talk about having to try and get into um, a uh, unit that's storing these that was completely painted over. Yes. <laughs> um, so what was this like as a kind of experience of trying to research this? Um, what was the like physical archive like for you? Sure. Sure. So um, when we think of archives, um, we also often think of, you know, libraries, right. Or other places where things are climate controlled and you give a slip of paper of the case you want or something to an archivist or a librarian. And they pull that back to you and you, you know, sometimes are wearing gloves or something like that and looking at, um, the material and, uh, the, the material that this book is based on is absolutely nothing like that. In fact, none of the cases that I examined are in any traditional archive at all. They're all in the possession still of the clerk of the court's office, the, at, usually at the courthouse itself. Um, and so the conditions really vary. Um, so they're not, they haven't been, for the most part, they have not been organized. So that means that, you know, they they can be in boxes um, or in drawers with a case from, you know, 1818 next to one from 1869 and so on as the case of uh, Claiborne County, Mississippi. Um, 
or they are, they're still tri-folded. So they look like old envelopes, um, folded and then, uh, and then tied with string. And many of them had not, and they're kind of falling apart. They're ripped and torn, um, handwritten and, and so on and deteriorating significantly. Most of them are in places where there isn't any fire or flood protection or even air conditioning. So they're sometimes in basements or in storage sheds on the outskirts of town. And indeed, um, the clerks, a lot in, in many of the places, um, the clerks don't even know that they still have them somewhere in the courthouse. Um, so for example, when I went, the first time I went to Claiborne County, Mississippi, uh, the deputy clerk was there, not the, the clerk of the court. And, and she had no idea. I could see um, in parts of the courthouse that they had, I could recognize the old drawers that looked like they carried the cases. And I asked, you know, um, is that where they are? I'm looking for things before the Civil War. And she just didn't have any idea of what I was talking about. I actually didn't get access to that stuff for about two years mm-hmm. um, until I could finally make it at a time when the actual clerk was there. And then she allowed me in. Um, to access it. Um, but then wouldn't let me bring in a ladder. So I had to stand up on books and, (laughs) and so on. And those were the drawers that were, um, that were painted shut. They were so completely sealed, um, in other places. So the records of Adams County, Mississippi, where Natchez is, are, are much better preserved. Um, those ones were, were rescued from, by the historic Natchez Foundation just before, about six months before the courthouse flooded, and they would have all been destroyed. And they were in the basement of the historic Natchez Foundation, and they're now renovating it to put them in a climate-controlled area. But when I was researching in there, they didn't have any fire or flood or air conditioning or anything to preserve them. Um, in other places, they were kept in storage sheds. So, uh, and again, the clerk didn't know what was in those boxes. So I was taken once after about three months of researching in Iberville Parish and eating lunch every day with people from the courthouse. They finally remembered that they had these other storage sheds and took me out there on a rainy day, um, and I, we get there, and the storage shed it has a dirt floor. All the boxes had rotted. There was a rat actually in one of the boxes that had rotted, and it, but it was just everything was covered with bugs and um, debris from bugs, and so on. And I, what I did was gather up about six to seven large leaf bags, big trash bags of all of these records, and brought them back to the courthouse, and then spread them out on these tables and dried them out and um, look through them. And they were all, uh, those records were all for the most part, um, criminal records involving enslaved people and property and succession records involving the estates of free people of color from the late 18th and early 19th century Iberville parish. And there, uh, so I took photographs of everything, but they're really in danger um, of being lost to history uh, forever. So, so what I did um, was uh, go through systematically through all of the records that each of these uh, these courthouses had, searched through for any case that involved um, a black plaintiff or defendant, and then. Um, and then took fo- digital photographs of that so that I would have my own archive just in case. 
um, uh, and uh, and then was able to bring that that home with me. And so, I, in the end, I think I have something like forty thousand photographs, images of of these cases. Um, so, which I use in teaching now, and uh, and allow my students to use as well in their research. Wow, it sounds like a, a true test of like physical endurance just to be able to do the <laughs> research, having to track all these things down and climb on books and everything. I'm I'm not sure how that's better than allowing you to just bring a ladder in, but um, it was a little you know. sneaky, I have to say, on my part, just trying to get to the top of the ceiling where the other other drawers were. But yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's certainly a lot of commitment there. Um. So I guess to get into the book itself, you begin um, in the first part of the book talking about how this is a story of accountability. So when you speak about that, who is accountable here? Well, um, it's both who and yeah. So uh, I, when I talk about accountability, I'm talking about um, in a lot of ways, this is sort of a guiding theme uh, that I saw in the cases, and then thus was a guiding theme in the book. In the book, um, and I'm talking there about the ways in which um, uh, litigants use the courts as a space to be seen as a person who counts. Um, to be seen as someone that uh, su- that counts such that they could make a claim and then have that claim be recognized. So this is the assertion that the per- uh, that the plaintiff was deserving um, to be in that space, um, and that those listening to the plaintiff, whether that would be the judge or the jury or other other people, the audience in the courtroom, because these were all public events, that those listening were bound to hear them um, and then. To to act. So it was to make the ways in which litigants, black litigants made um, those in more powerful positions accountable to them, but also accountable to their claims and, uh, and, and so on. Yeah. And in the first part of your book, you speak about the ways in which uh, enslaved and free black people go about uh, having people around them be accountable, making people accountable, uh, talking about storytelling, the politics of reputation, and just the very acts of advocacy on these people's parts. And so what does this look like? What do these tactics and methods look like for free and enslaved people? Sure. Um, so they they use a so the, yeah, I organized the book in, in two parts and, the, and they're kind of there's overlap, of course, but the first part of the book examines the tactics in which black litigants used or leveraged to to make their claims. And then the second half of the book um, looks at uh, looks at cases on the ground. So um, different types of cases, debt, um, property, freedom suits, and then final a final chapter where I kind of pull it all together through the story of one family. Um, and so, uh, so in the in the first part, um, I begin with storytelling um, and uh, and look at the way and focus on three cases in particular um, in in depth and look at the ways in which um, black litigants used narratives or um, telling of stories in order um, to. Uh, from their point of view, um, in, in order to get them re- recognized in court, um, their claims in court as legitimate. Um, 
And so these are narratives in which, um, from their point of view, from their um, experiences, uh, and so on, um, where they um, they present themselves as, say, citizens or free or self-reliant um, qualities and conditions that slaveholders ordinarily wouldn't um, have allowed from them or wouldn't allow for, and um, telling and using that as a way um, to to win. Um, and you also see then. So we were cut off for a moment there, but you were speaking about the ways in which black people were able to use narratives for their advantage and the ways in which they had to deal with counter narratives. Right. Um, so what you see in trials, um, and, you know, in the adversarial process is, is the the person with the best story is often the one that wins. Right. And the trials are revealing contests over narratives. So for every narrative that um, a free or enslaved uh, person presented, black person presented of um, being a citizen or um, or as a free person or so on, you see um, the white defendants presenting the courts with a counter narrative. And these are stories that tend to be immersed in the language of race and really the uh, and of white supremacy and the subordination of people of color. These were attempts to limit the opportunities and to silence the voices of free and enslaved African Americans. But nonetheless, what you see happening is that the that the narratives that black litigants weaved uh, provoked the de- defendants themselves to respond in kind, to account for their actions. And you can see the ways in which these stories affected uh, white slaveholders. Um, and what I think is so, one of the things that's so interesting is the, is the how often the court sided with um, with the black litigant and thus recognized the story or the voice um, of the of the black litigant as as true. Whites like to think that they had a monopoly on truth in this time period, and um, we see through this storytelling um, that they in fact did not. So that is one of the uh, one of the tactics that I discuss um, uh, these litigants using in court to their to their advantage, or ways in which they leveraged their own personal stories, um, and uh, in ways that um, reflect an interpretation of how they think their world should function. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And I think that's so interesting in that, you know, the methods that these people are using to, you know, have a voice and defend themselves and everything like that is, as you as you just said, and as you say in the book, is really kind of reimagining the world around them. You know, they're remaking it in the way that they think it should be. You know, they're looking at the situation around them, whether they're a free black person in the South or they're enslaved and they're saying, you know, this is the way it should be um, or shouldn't be. 
thinking back to the case that got you interested in this to Mm -hmm. begin with. Um, And one of the ways that you uh, one of the other methods that you look at is reputation. So how does reputation play into this? So I think about, um, so a lot of this book is about language. It's a, so, um, telling stories and, and repu- leveraging reputation, um, or the sort of cultural scripts of reputation, um, in court to their advantage is another tactic that, um, I see. And, um, and here I, I look at the ways, um, uh, litigants, black litigants, um, sort of used uh, their reputations to their advantage um, in court and the ways in which they used the the expectations of um, race or white supremacy. So to, to, to present themselves as say um, as good or obedient or something like that um, on one hand. And then on the other hand, the ways in which they leverage their reputations in their communities um, as property owners uh, and then the, uh, and all the characteristics that go with property ownership. So reliant, um, industrious and so on. And um, so when they're leveraging their reputations uh, in court as a well-behaved or obsequious or something like that person, the the kind of thing that whites expected them to do, these were especially helpful in cases that involved um, restrictive legislation. So cases where they're petitioning to remain in the state or something like that, Um, both Mississippi and Louisiana, as well as the rest of the South. Um, throughout the antebellum period, passed a number of laws trying to remove free black people from the state. They saw them as a dangerous example to enslaved people, particularly if they were successful in any way, and they sought to remove them. Um, But those removal laws were locally um, negotiated. And one of the ways that, uh, that uh, uh, African descended people, um, got out of this was to petition either their the state government or their local court to remain in the state. And to do so, they had to show, or at least say that they, um, that they were what whites expected them to be. So obedient and, and, and so on, um, that they had, they remembered their place, um, and, and so forth. And by using that language and, and, um, kind of, uh, manipulating their reputation, they're able to get what they want to remain in the state, to keep their businesses, to be by their families, and so on. So that's one on one side of it. But they don't just. One of the things I thought was so interesting is that in a great deal of the cases, they don't just rely on a reputation for obsequiousness and um, obedience, but they also um, rely on characteristics that whites like to think that they had ownership of. So um, property ownership and independence and so on. And then there are a number of cases where um, they they present themselves as um, being decisive in terms of protecting their property and so forth as a, as a means to, and show that they have a reputation for reliability and the other kinds of things that they would, people would expect of a property owner. Um, so for example, there's a case that I spend a great deal of time in with in that chapter of, um, 
of a, uh, a, a black man named LaCour who's, uh, who had employed, um, a white overseer named Ingledove and Ingle, and then he fires him um, and doesn't pay him the rest of his wages. And so Ingledove sues him four times, twice for back wages and twice for defamation. And he lost all of these cases. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting is that Ingledove has a reputation in the community for being a thief, for being kind of a waffler and so on. And, um, and LaCour has the opposite. He has the reputation for being a property owner with links to the community, for being reliable, for being a good business man, for being, um, uh, you know, all of those things that are tied to property. Um, and he uses uh, his, that, his reputation for that in order to, to win his case. And that's so interesting in the ways that uh, these people are able to kind of leverage their reputations within the community for their benefit, Mm -hmm. um, both in ways that are kind of, you know, playing into the system, but also subverting the system. Exactly. And so and in kind of going off of this example that you just brought up of this black man who, you know, has ties to the community, has property and all this stuff. One of the next things that you speak about in your book is debt. So how does debt play a huge part in the lives of uh, black litigants? Debt, you know, it's funny. The debt chapter became um, my favorite one. And it was uh, and it was one that I detested at the beginning, because the majority of cases in the local courts on the ground in these places are debt cases. I'd say at least 90% of the cases are debt cases. And it typically involves one white man suing another white man over anything from 10 to you know $4,000. And they're formulaic and so on. Um, but they all, but, but the cases also involve black lenders um, who uh, who lent money um, to both whites and other people of color, uh, and then sued to recover um, recover that money and to get repaid. And one of the things that I found so interesting, uh, or and find so interesting about debt, is that it has a link. It involves promises, promises to people, so promises to pay, promises to be accountable to one's word, um, and so on. And and what we see through these cases is the ways in which black litigants um, use debt to bind others to them in uh, into networks of obligation. So, um, in order to kind of pull somebody into their, their circle in in a way, and that's something that they could use later on if they needed to, um, or, uh, the other thing that I found so interesting about debt cases was just how often um, black litigants won. So of the 90 extant cases that I found, they uh, only two cases um, involved uh, a verdict for the defendant. All the rest involved verdicts for the um, plaintiff. And 70% of those cases um involved a white defendant. So it's so interesting to me that um, a black person could bind a white person um, into a relationship of obligation through 
through debt and that the courts would recognize um, that relationship as um, as reliable as as true. Yeah. And it's so interesting to think about the ways in which the kind of normative at the time uh, kind of social relations are flipped on their head when you think about a black person lending money or something um, of some uh, property or some sort to a white person and them being in this relationship of obligation to a black person, something yeah. that is just not supposed to happen, yeah. something that we're not used to thinking about during this time. Absolutely. And it gets even weirder still. Um, so the majority of those cases, almost all of them involve a free person of color, but it gets even weirder still when that person is a slave and it's an enslaved person, um, you know, somebody who is property, uh, who who sues, um, somebody who's not supposed to hold property without the permission of their master by law, who's suing to recover a debt from a white person. I mean, then you definitely have an inversion of um, uh, and of the social order, and you put whites in a real bind. I mean, and you think about the kind of links think sort of metaphorically about what slavery is, about binding and so on. Um, and you have a real change um, in, the, in the relationship, um, one that must have been fairly uh, scary for a number of uh, white folks. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's honestly fascinating. And it leads nicely into one of the next major points that you make in the book about uh, property rights being civil rights for mm. free and enslaved black people. So what, what are you saying there? So um, when we think about tactics, um, it's, it's not just reputation or stories. I mean, the majority of these cases are, they're civil cases. Yes, but they also are the black litigants frame them through the language of property and in terms of property. And so property here, and I can explain that in more depth in a minute, but um, to answer your question, property then becomes a sort of stand-in for a much, what we see um, as a state, we can see as a stand-in for a much broader spectrum of rights. So um, a black litigant couldn't just go into court and, and say, you know, make claims based on um, racial equality or something like that. They had to do it within the framework of what was possible for the time. And so property was a way that they, um, they, they were able to do this. Now, yes, some of the cases involve like real direct property, they're suing over land or something like that. But that's not always, you know, when you're thinking about, say, a freedom suit, um, somebody is making a claim to themselves um, as their property. And so they, we can see in the cases, they claim that, you know, their property is their civil right. They use that that term over and over. And, and it's to claim land, but it's also to claim, you see them claiming membership in particular communities, um, claiming an ability to move, um, uh, claiming an ability to protect their family's futures and secure things and so on that are uh, that are broader, that are linked to human dignity, the protection of human dignity, not just say a you know a piece of a thing, or a relationship to a thing, um, and so property then um, it can be is generative of um, a much broader spectrum of rights. 
And this puts whites in a bit of a bind. Um, so, you know, slave owners, for slave owners, um, you know, they want to uphold white supremacy. Um, they want to not be allow a black person to make a claim to things in court, to claim themselves as legal persons um, in court and so on. But they value private property and private property and racial slavery, they're fundamentally linked. They outline their defense of slavery in the language of property rights, their right to hold people as property. But there are tensions within this system. They, In order to make it this a racialized economy palatable to um, non-slaveholders, they have to, their law has to protect property generally. And so they're not looking to um, upend that system. And so that meant um, that Black litigants could use this fact, the fact that the legal system um, sort of raising detra of the le- Southern legal system was the protection of property rights of slaveholders, then black litigants could use that fact to protect their own livelihoods. And this put whites in a bind. They were kind of faced with an awkward choice of either treating black litigants uh, or black people as legal persons or to protect their own property rights. And they chose to protect property rights over and over again. And that that meant then that um, black litigants could sort of maneuver in there and protect, um, yes, their own property, but a broader spectrum of things as well. And it's just, it's fascinating the ways in which uh, black litigants are able to just use this system that is not meant to protect them Mm -hmm. for their own benefits um, in terms of taking the logic of slaveholders and property and flipping it on its head. You know, it's not supposed to be protecting free black people and enslaved people, but they basically look at everyone. They're just like, Hey, like, this is what you're saying. So fill in the blanks here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are not courts. I mean, this is definitely not um, a story here that uh, that uh, that the courts were fair in any way, you know, or that Southerners wanted to present themselves as fair. I mean, we have to remember these are the same exact courts that regulated an economy based on the production and reproduction of uh, people of African descent. These are the same courts that ordered the sale of their children um, or separated. Yeah, and separated families or ordered them executed and hung or sent out of the state and and so on. Um, And so it is really interesting that they found a sort of a space for themselves using that very language and putting whites in such a bind that to not allow it would upend their whole system. And so then they did and they came in and they claimed um, and they claimed rights and they claimed legal personhood. And to me, this is also a claim to civic inclusion. Um, It's a claim that they're somebody who counts, yes, um, and that they're being recognized um, and that people are accountable to them and and so forth. But it's also um, a claim I mean, when we think about property, um, and prop- property in this time period is t- uh, tied to a sort of white male um, claim to independence and, and reliability and so on, the kind of Jeffersonian um, property, small farmer property ownership thing. And they're claiming the same, they're claiming the same thing, that they also have um, a right um, to uh, a public civic identity. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's just fascinating the way they're able to go about doing this. And that leads nicely into what you speak about in your last chapter, which is self-ownership mm-hmm. as um, and you mentioned this already in the ways in which, you know, self-ownership is a sort of the ways in which they go about. Uh, arguing this is rooted in property and property is this way of getting at rights and everything like that. And so what does, you know, self-ownership in these cases that black litigants are bringing um, and claiming themselves look like? So um, these are in a sense uh, what I think of as uh, claims to personhood um, or legal personhood in particular, and that's the legal recognition and protection of self-ownership. And and it's a right, claiming a right to um, both one's body um, and one's labor. Uh, And so freedom suits, I think personhood claims are sort of most uh, you know, we can see them the most in freedom suits, uh, where an enslaved person sues um, a, a, a white captor or owner uh, for for their freedom. Um, and you know, th- these cases involve uh, ownership, yes, but also self determination. So there are many things that also derive from personhood. It's a claim to one's body. It's a claim to one the proceeds of one's labor. Um, it also is uh, many other things derive from uh, self-possession. So a freedom of movement, an ability to contract, um, whether that is for wages or to marry, um, to even to sue and be sued, I think, are all all part of uh, claiming um, personhood and thus uh, the protection of um, self-ownership. And that's when we see these showing up time and again in freedom suits. So uh, one, of, one of the things that's so interesting is that we often see an enslaved person claiming to be free, but also in their petition claiming to own something else besides themselves. So they want um, to bring cattle they've held or a watch or clothing or things like that. But then also saying, not only am I free, but you owe me back wages. And the courts um, often find for these things. I mean, there's a case, one of the cases I found the court um, awarded an enslaved couple who sued successfully for their freedom, $900 in back wages. And it's a sort of almost a reparations in a sense. Um, And it was for nine years or something like that of, uh, of back wages. And that's a lot of money. When you think of a, what a white overseer might make is a two to $300 a year or something like that. $900, um, is, is a considerable amount of money. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is amazing. In I mean, all you honesty. could become I mean, a landowner with that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could, you could easily do that at the time and be able to set up a new life for yourself exactly. and th- the ways in which they're able to go about doing this and, you know, make a claim, not only, you know, I, I find it so interesting the ways in which all of these, you know, various aspects, you know, uh, self-ownership, property, debt, all of these things are just so interconnected. And Mm -hmm. it's really interesting the way that you're able to use these cases to make these, to show how these black litigants are making claims on so many things that they're not supposed to have access to. Yeah, absolutely. And then the, 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 so the part two 
basically ends with a freedom suit, um, uh, the freedom suit chapter, but the, the final chapter basically pulls all of this together, all of these tactics and so on across a couple of generations involving, um, the belly family of Louisiana to show how in a multi-generational sense, how, um, how telling stories, leveraging reputation, protecting property, making one and others accountable to them, making claims to personhood, all of these things could be um, pulled together by one family over the span of about 60 to 70 years. Um, and uh, even in, and even into the postbellum period. And thinking that it's sort of the lessons, um, because these are, in, in a sense, you know, and we should think about them as kind of, I guess, a, a, a precursor to the claims to civil rights. Yeah, I mean, you could honestly make the argument for teaching a class that starts now um, or not now, but starts then on like civil rights, you know, mm-hmm. the ways in which they transform over time. Um, I mean, it's it's truly fascinating. Uh, and so I guess to finish up the interview, could you tell our listeners what we might expect from you in the future? What are you working on now? Sure. Um, I am, I'm actually working on a project on debt. <laughs> uh, something I never expected of myself, um, when I first started researching this and found the debt cases so boring, but I, um, I don't think that anymore. Uh, I, through researching this book, um, I ran into a, a large number of mostly free black people uh, lending money to uh, to whites and or other people in their communities. And so I have started uh, looking into that and I'm writing or uh, working on a book now on um on black money lenders in the Atlantic economy. And so some of them are stemming from these court cases that involved money lenders, but I also um, am currently delving into the records of the Suli family, a uh, prosperous free family of color in, uh, in New Orleans, who live between New Orleans and Paris. And they lend large, large amounts of money. I'm talking about like a, a 19, or 1858, for example, they had over $100,000 in notes receivable out um, as money lent um, to, wow. to, yeah, <laughs> and to people all over. So they're, and they're moving between um, New Orleans, uh, Philadelphia, Liverpool, and Paris. Um, and sort of, and part of that whole uh, economy. So right now I'm really interested in, um, uh, uh, free people of color, not just uh, as property and labor in the Southern economy, but also as investors, owners, um, a sort of more varied way of examining their relationship to the Southern economy. So that's, well, that's what I'm working on right now. <laughs> yeah, that certainly sounds very interesting. Yeah, um, Hopefully once you do that, we can have you back on the program. That would be great. Yeah. But before that can happen, everyone, you got to make sure and go out and buy her book right now. Dr. Kimberly Welch, Black Litigants in the Antebellum American South. Certainly sounds very interesting to me. I hope it sounds interesting to y'all. Um, thank you, Dr. Welch, for being on the program today. Thank you so much, Derek. This was really fun. 